Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. If you would, turn into your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. Mark chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I want to say what a great privilege and honor it is to be able to preach the word to you this morning. As Dan mentioned, I grew up here. My family moved here when I was about six months old. I like to say that I'm the one who convinced them to come to Calvary when I was a at we age there, I recently did graduate from Southern Seminary last month and married the girl of my dreams last month as well, and she did happen to grow up here too, so there is potential spouses out there for you young people. <laughs> as uh, Dan mentioned, I served as a pastoral intern for a few years here at, here at Calvary, which uh, it gave me a lot of good pastoral experience that I'm very grateful for, but it also gave me a lot of Unusual, unusually amount of air filter changing, plumbing, and attic diving as well. And so I'm very grateful for the, the multifaceted well-roundedness of the internship program. Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Mark 5, beginning with verse 21. If you would, follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. Hear the very words of God this morning. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the, gar- in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. What a passage. They laughed at him. 
But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. If you would pray briefly with me. Father, we pray what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us for the glory of your great name. Amen. I want to ask the question, what does childlike faith look like? You may have heard that being in a religious context. You heard that thrown around here and there. Maybe you've heard that Jesus demands, he calls you to have childlike faith in him. But what exactly does that look like? Does that look like that you're, that you're gullible, that you're naive, that you nag and you ask, are we there yet on a road trip? What does it look like to have childlike faith in Jesus? And I think this morning our text here models for us the type of childlike faith which honors God. We are jumping into the middle of two great healings of Jesus. Our story of the woman with the flow of blood for 12 years is sandwiched between the narrative of Jairus and his dying daughter. While we will primarily be looking at the story of the woman, it's important that we get the surrounding context of what's happening. I think Mark intends that these two stories act as left and right speakers so that we can better hear and understand the heart of God and the nature of saving faith. Look at with me the contrast he is making. On the one hand, we have Jairus, who is a religious official of the synagogue. He's a respectable Jew, and he's given a name in the story. He has a great need, and he's, he's, he's welcome to freely approach Jesus with this need. He doesn't have to hide in the corner or, or uh, pull back. He's a respectable man. And on the other hand, Mark presents this nameless ambiguous and unclean woman. She is walking pollution. Anyone who touches her becomes unclean by the instruction of the law of God. She is an outcast by her condition. She is separated from the community and from the people of God, and she can't even worship in the Lord's holy place, the temple. Unlike Jairus, she has no social honor. She must anonymously touch Jesus in order to avoid deeper embarrassment and further shame. She's not portrayed as anyone important. She's not been given a name. However, we see in the story that, that Jesus, he graciously intervenes on both of these people, in both of these stories. With this, he completely levels the playing field. He shows us that the Savior of the world is not concerned merely with the spiritually elite, but also with the low and the needy. And from the larger context of this book, Mark is building the case for Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And Mark 1, 14 to 15, uh, Mark presents Jesus coming onto the scene with the very first words coming out of his mouth. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In verse 38 of the same chapter, Jesus himself states that he went to the various towns to preach the good news of the kingdom. And in Mark chapter 4, right before our passage, he teaches many parables on the kingdom of God. However, 
intermixed in the proclamation of the, the kingdom is the rapid fire succession of miracles. We're only in chapter five of Mark here, and Mark has already demonstrated the matchless power of Jesus and the account of healing a demon-possessed man, a man with a withered hand, a paralytic, a leper, an unclean spirit, and many others who were sick or oppressed by demons. And as a whole, the Gospel of Mark puts this huge emphasis on miracles. Almost 50% of the first 10 chapters of Mark are miracle stories. All in all, one-third of, miracles, of Mark's total gospel is composed of miracles. That's amazing. A third of the whole book is miracles. We see then that Jesus arrives to preach the kingdom because he is the king. And along the way, he's showing immense compassion, uh, compassion to people who are in need. He is a gracious king, is he not? But as he is healing, he's got a greater motive in his healing. He wants to get the true message of his ministry across to, this, to these people. Because as he heals, he does something very odd. Did you catch it at the end of this passage that we read? He tells the people that he heals to not tell anybody. He says, no, keep it, keep it hush. I don't want you spreading this around. You would think that he would want word to get out that he's healing people, right? But he doesn't. He didn't come to be king at this time. He didn't come to set up his earthly kingdom here, now. Rather, he came to seek and to save. He came to die. And Jesus doesn't want them spreading a false gospel. He doesn't want them spreading this news that he is a healer because he's way more than that. Thus, he instructs them to keep silent. You see, he's on a mission far beyond mere physical healing. As Jesus himself says in Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Thus, these miracles, they serve as an authentication of Jesus' teaching. They're not just random. They serve a purpose. Mark is showing that Jesus' words are backed up by his actions. He has complete authority over nature and the calming of the storm. He holds complete authority over demonic powers and the casting out of demons. And he has complete authority over sickness and even death and the raising of Jairus, Jairus' daughter and the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. There is overwhelming power surging through his kingly veins. Don't miss this. He is much more than a great prophet or teacher. He is through and through the long-awaited Messiah come to save sinners. This morning, my prayer is that as you encounter this Christ through this story, you will be encouraged to follow in the footsteps of this woman as she boldly commits childlike faith and the one who can save to the uttermost. We're going to see three things in the story. Number one, a great need. Number two, a greater healer. And number three, an even greater savior. So let's jump in. A great need. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. The text says that Jesus went, went with Jairus and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. So the scene opens up with this massive crowd. Everybody's kind of following around Jesus, presumably to be healed of their illnesses and their sicknesses, right? And it says that the, 
that the people thronged about him. It's a great word to use. It's this, this picture of outright, unorganized chaos, right? Everybody's just, and they're pressing on desperate people, every side, everybody wants to touch Jesus, everyone wants to be healed, and it is aggressive. It's this image of your inability to move without touching five other people. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, maybe a concert or something like that. It's not a fun situation. These people are not just people, they're not just everyday people, they're plagued with diseases, deemed incurable by the doctors of the day. It's a smelly, dirty, and crowded scene. It's very uncomfortable. Surely the disciples are just seeking to get away and just just to breathe a little bit. There's so many people wanting to approach Jesus. The, The competition for his attention is strong. And right now, Jairus has his attention. However, in the middle of this already overloaded scene, this one woman interrupts the whole narrative. And who is she? We don't know. The gospel writers leave us in the dark concerning her identity. What they do provide, however, is the severity of her desperate condition. Look again at verses 25 and 26. There's a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. See, she is suffering from this unusual medical issue of a continual flood, uh, uh, blood flow. She has had this hemorrhage for 12 years now. This affliction makes it impossible to ever feel healthy and to get strength back again. And because of her constant loss of blood, she may have experienced any of the following side effects. Chest pain or swelling, bleeding from the mouth, cold skin, dizziness, weakness, confusion, paleness, trouble breathing, weak pulse, bruising, vomiting of blood, and many other physical issues that are frankly too graphic to mention here. She suffers daily, even hourly, because of her loss of blood. She's greatly handicapped in her day-to-day tasks. Think about it. The moment that she tries to clean her house, she's got to lay down because she gets too tired. The moment she tries to tend her home, make a meal, or even work, any number of physical issues prevent her from accomplishing that task. But if merely having this hemorrhage wasn't bad enough, the doctors that she went to to receive help have only amplified her pain. Her condition is not getting better, but it's getting worse. The text doesn't really tell us exactly how it got worse, but she suffered much under many doctors who she paid greatly just to have her life back. Perhaps you can relate to this woman. Perhaps you've been unable to function in ways that you were able to function in the past. It's not a fun feeling, is it? Have you ever been so weak and frail that you feel useless? I want you to put yourself in her shoes and imagine the emotional pain that this woman probably experienced in addition to the physical pain. Because of her condition, she probably feels useless, worthless, maybe even unlovable. Furthermore, in addition to the physical and emotional pain, there's a strong social and spiritual agony as well. According to the law of God in Leviticus 15, this woman is perpetually unclean because of her constant flow of blood. She cannot even set foot in the temple to worship with the people of God. She's not permitted. She's always stuck with being on the outskirts. Just think of that. Like, yeah, you, you, you can come in. Yes, you. But 
you? No. You've you got to stay out there. You're, you're unclean. There's nothing that we can do for you. No sacrifice will suffice. Moreover, as if it wasn't bad enough, there's a strong presence of retribution theology, which means that God causes bad things to happen to bad people and good things to happen to good people. Thus, if you have a sickness to this degree, it must be the case that you are in sin. This was the theology of Job and his friends. This was the theology of the religious leaders who have the nerve to ask upon seeing a blind man. They ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Can you imagine the gall, the nerve? Surely this woman is negatively impacted by this false theology of suffering. She struggles with the guilt of thinking that maybe there's just one sin in my life that's preventing me from getting well. Maybe the Lord is judging me. That's why I've been experiencing this for 12 long years. Can you imagine carrying that weight around? Not to mention her impurity is extremely contagious. It's transmissible to everyone. Anyone who sleeps in her bed, sits in her chair, or even touches her becomes unclean. Similar to that of a leper, this woman suffers from being excluded by normal relationships. She probably doesn't have many friends and might even live alone. Let this woman's great need sink in. Don't miss this. She has absolutely no hope. She's at rock bottom. She's at the end of her rope. She's exhausted, discouraged, and spent. She's spent every last penny trying to get well. She's experiencing the weighty effects of the fall. Can you relate to this woman? Are you feeling like you are just done with life, that you are burnt out by the heavy trials of this world? You might not be able to relate to her exact situation, but we all have hardships that we deal with because we live in a broken world. We daily experience the muck and mire. We are splashed on by the mud of this life every single day. Maybe there is in your life right now a debilitating disease, a physical illness that's preventing you from functioning normally. Maybe there's a spiritual illness in your life right now. Maybe there's a sin that you've been wrestling with for weeks, for months, maybe even years, maybe even 12 years. You just cannot shake it. Maybe there's a family trial or something at work that's just consuming your life. Let this woman encourage you. Don't miss this. Our sin, our neediness does not disqualify us from the grace of God. But actually the opposite is true. The fact that we don't have our lives all together makes us prime recipients of his grace. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the the kingdom of God. Childlike faith understands that you are incapable of fully helping yourself. It means that you are like a child who can only cry and hope that his parents love him enough to change him, to feed him, and to to tend to him. You are unable to be independent as a Christian. You are needy, weak, and powerless in of yourself. Do you view yourself like that? Do you view yourself as desperate for the grace of God? Do you see yourself as daily needy and dependent for his grace? 
what does your practice of Bible reading, your, your practice of prayer say about your dependence of God? Does it say, yeah, I can go a few days and I'll be all right? I can go a few weeks and I'll be okay? Or do you wake up and you say, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Do you feel that neediness, that weight inside of yourself? A sure sign of spiritual pride is that you think that you graduate from this stage of Christianity. You desperately need him whether you feel it or not. Pray that God would give you humble eyes to see the reality of your deep weakness and dependence. God says that my grace is sufficient for you, that my power is made perfect in your weakness. Don't shy away from your weaknesses for those are opportunities for Christ to fill you. Which leads us to our second point. We've seen a great need. We're going to look at, secondly, a greater healer. Mark does not leave the story here. The story does not end with verse 26. Look at verses 27 and 28 with me. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. Despite everything that's happened to this woman, she has one last hope. She had heard what Jesus had been doing, how he'd been healing the unhealable and associating himself with the outcast. Hope began to rise up again in her heart. Could he be the one to finally heal me? Her plan is to simply sneak up behind Jesus, to touch the hem of his garment and receive healing from this powerful man. Earlier in Mark 3, Many others were described as reaching out to touch Jesus to receive miraculous healing from him. So in her mind, this is the established means by which you're healed by Jesus. You touch him. It's simple. It's not complex. Her desire is to go completely unnoticed. If she's caught, she will lose any dignity that she has left. She will forever be known as the scandalous, unclean woman who made a Jewish teacher unclean. Her logic is simple. It's easy to follow. Her faith is straightforward. It's not complex. She doesn't overthink it. She just goes for it. Look at what happens when she carries out with her plan in verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Suddenly her life-altering disease shriveled up in an instant not an ounce of it remained the rush of energy and health flooded her frail body for the first time in 12 long years. Her plan worked. Her faith was greatly rewarded by the Lord. This once crippled woman can now live her life normally again. She's no longer hindered by her physical weakness. She can become useful in society once again. She had gained her life back. And who was the one who was able to heal this woman? Who was, able to, who was capable of healing diseases deemed incurable by other physicians? It's the same one who calmed the fierce storms in chapter 4. The same one who reigns supreme over every demonic force and has authority to cast out demons earlier in this chapter. The same one whose power is literally searching to even the hem of his garment. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is healer. He has come to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, open the prison to those who are bound, Proclaim the 
year of the Lord's favor to comfort all who mourn, to give them oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This isn't prosperity gospel. The point of the story is not that God is your pinata and you just need to beat him with your faith stick. It aims too low. The prosperity gospel aims too low. The story is telling us something far better. The point of the story in context is to reveal to us that this is the long-awaited Messiah powerfully foreshadowing his power to heal, save, and restore what is sick gone and broken. Jesus is inaugurating his kingdom in the wake of these miracles. His redemption of the souls of his people is accompanied by radical, miraculous acts which function as a foretaste to life in the new heavens and the new earth. Unlike the first creation where God first created the world and then the people to occupy the world, And the second better creation, God is first creating his people and then the world for us to live in. Jesus is beginning this grand transformation. He is showing us that he can mend what is beyond repair. For he is making all things new. This is what we see in this story. This is divine power breaking through to our messy world. And beloved, it is glorious. It's glorious. I want you to notice two things about this woman. Number one, her simple faith. And number two, her limited knowledge. Her simple faith. It's not the quality of faith that healed this woman. Her faith is incomplete. She thought that touching Jesus was necessary to be healed, but it's not. She thought that she could touch him without him noticing, but he did. She doesn't know much. Her theology is not perfect. But praise God, it's not the amount of faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. Jesus said, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Yes, faith is the means by which the cure was accomplished, but the power is all in Christ. She has small faith. Oh, but it will be increased We are about to see her faith grow exponentially as she personally encounters her Messiah. Jesus said in Mark 4, for the one who has, more will be given. Is your faith weak this morning? Do you want to be a stronger Christian? Do you want to be a more faithful believer in the face of trials and hardship? One commentator observes, quote, your faith instinctively strengthens and direct proportion to the expansion of your object of your faith. Expand the understanding of the object of your faith, and faith itself will obediently follow. Is your faith weak? You need to truly know the object of your faith more. Vigorously and desperately pursue Christ like this woman. Don't be ashamed. He remembers our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. He delights in filling our needs as his children. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. I love how a great hymn reminds us, Oh, what peace we often forfeit, what needless pain we often bear. 
All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Pursue him and his word. In the words of John Piper, the Bible is an ocean of weighty, all-satisfying truth about the one whom you were made to know. Pursue him through his church, through prayer, through scripture meditation, through serving others, through all the many means of graces that we have to pursue the Lord. Let your faith be strengthened as you encounter the beauty and the glory of Christ and so transformed into his same likeness. She's got simple faith, but she's also got limited knowledge. She doesn't have a lot of knowledge, but she acts on what she does know. No doubt she's got an extremely underdeveloped Christology. She couldn't tell you the contours of the hypostatic union or the dogmas of penal substitution. She probably doesn't even know why Jesus is even here, the extent of his full ministry. Her knowledge of Jesus is limited and it's small. But her action is bold and it is great. Love what David Garland observes. He says, quote, mere belief about Jesus did not bring the healing, but faith in Jesus that took action did. Isn't it the case that that knowledge of God doesn't always mean that you trust him more? That knowledge of God doesn't always mean that you love him more? Knowledge of God doesn't mean that you'll actually know God. There's a disconnect there sometimes, isn't there? You can have read every theological work ever written, listened to every sermon by John MacArthur, John Piper, or whatever John you listen to, have the whole Bible memorized in the original languages and still not truly know God any more than when you started. I'm not suggesting that you stop studying and earnestly pursuing the Lord, but what I am saying is that many of the times, God is calling you to obey what you already know. Truly knowing God is not less than knowledge of God, but it's certainly more than that. To truly know God, you've got to obey him. You've got to trust him. You've got to love him. You've got to let that knowledge bellow the fire in your heart to outflow to love and good deeds. As Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who knows a lot about God. No, no. How blessed is the man who trusts in him. Beloved, if you fail to apply what you know, you will become like a moldy sponge. That sponge will start by passively sitting week in, week out, just soaking it all in. And if that sponge is never squeezed to action, it will start to grow cold for the things of God. It will begin to complain and grumble. It will quickly dismiss its own sin and become a professional spec picker in the lives of others. It will manipulate its knowledge of God to glorify not God, but itself. It will have a repulsive stench to everyone who encounters it. Brother, sister, don't be a moldy sponge. You are created to be a river of living waters. That's what Jesus said in John 7. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I love the image of Proverbs 11.30. He says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Don't you love that image? That the fruit that the Spirit produces in our lives is a blessing to everyone who partakes of our tree. Fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. 
woman teaches us that childlike faith is quick to act on what we already know. So let me ask you, are you quick to act on what you already know? Is there an area in your life that you're putting off obedience to God? Where is God calling you to know him, trust him, love him more? I exhort you, mimic the faith of this woman as she reaches out in obedience to this gracious king. As amazing and wonderful as this healing is, the story doesn't end here. The woman starts with meeting her physical need, but the great physician does not leave her there. He pushes and takes her further. Leads us to our last point, an even greater savior. Look at verses 30 and 32. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Everything was going great for this woman. Then her plan unexpectedly failed. She wanted to simply get in, get out without being noticed. But Jesus notices her, doesn't he? Her worst nightmares are all coming true. Jesus discerns power, leaving him to heal her, and immediately he is on the search for this woman. Up to this point, the woman had been pursuing Jesus, but oh, how the tables are now turning. Jesus is now pursuing the woman with this simple question, who touched my garments? This tender question reminds me of the Lord in the garden with Adam and Eve. After they sinned, he asked, where are you? The Lord's gathering back his lost sheep, isn't he? He's gathering them back. As usual, the disciples have no idea what's going on. (laughs) But can we blame them? They respond, really, Jesus? There are tons of hands reaching for you, and you wonder who touched you? To be fair, I mean, it's a legitimate question from our limited human perspective, right? I can't really blame them. I would probably be like, what on earth? But Jesus is set on finding her, right? He doesn't even respond to the ignorance of the disciples, but continues to look around to see who had done it. He is on the search for this woman. Look at verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She's completely distraught. She thinks that her life is over. She is absolutely terrified. She blurts out everything out of nervousness, out of fear. She doesn't deny any of it. She owns it all. And at this point, she's probably expecting a reprimand or a judgment from him. Surely he will scold me. Surely he will judge me. Does Jesus turn and yell at her? Does he say, woman, you should have known better. Don't touch me with your unclean hands. Look at verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Do you hear this text scream of the gentle compassion of Christ? He's not angry. He's not upset. He's not even annoyed. He doesn't scold her. He will not allow her to be swept away in the crowds. He's reaching out for her. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Like cool water on a frantic heart, Jesus immediately accepts and loves this woman. However, it's, it's pretty clear that there's something more than just mere physical healing going on here. Earlier in Mark 2, you don't have to turn there, but something similar happens that better helps us understand what's happening here. Jesus heals a paralyzed man who was lowered in by the roof by his friends. They desperately seek Jesus so that they can heal this paralytic. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When the religious leaders hear of this, they say, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly, that's the point. Jesus responds, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. You see what's happening here? Jesus is showing us that if he can heal diseases, he has the power to forgive sins on earth. Another way to say it, the miracles of Jesus are visible signs of his invisible spiritual authority as God himself. Turning back to our story in Mark 5, we see that Jesus is exercising the same spiritual authority with this woman. His very first words to the woman are, daughter. She's no longer a nameless, unknown woman. She's been adopted. She has a family now. Jesus not only heals her of her physical agony, agony, but welcomes her into the family of God. He says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister, Mark 3. Also, he says, go in peace. He doesn't tell her to make a sacrifice in order to be at peace with God. He says, no, you're good. He's wielding authority no priest has. With this declaration, he is superseding the sacrificial system. Even more striking is that Jesus' holiness and purity is so great that an unclean woman touching him doesn't make him unclean, but makes her clean. The opposite happens. He is the spotless lamb of God. Surely it's here that this woman realizes that he is way more than I could ever imagined. He is the hope of the law. He is the promised one. He is the one to restore us, the one who will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. This woman experiences the heavy, indirect results of the fall. She lives with the excruciating disease because of sin in this world. However, even though she's healed, she's going to die. She will ultimately die. We will all ultimately die. This text is showing us that true healing isn't ultimately found in physical healing. She needs something way more than just a physical healer. She needs a savior. And while Jesus is not less than our healer, praise God, he is way more than that. He is our even greater savior. The gospel of Mark does not end at chapter five. The story continues. The story points forward. He will continue to heal and to serve and to pour out his life for others he will continue to preach and be rejected by the people. He will eventually be betrayed, accused, and brutally murdered. Why? 
because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Jesus is working to reverse the source of sin and not just the symptoms of sin. He is raising the spiritually dead to life, finding the lost, adopting the abandoned, enriching the poor with every spiritual blessing, freeing the enslaved from lust, clothing the naked in his resurrected power, granting us eternal life to where we will live forever with him and never die again. He is buying us back from sin's tyranny and he will redeem all who call upon him. He conquers sin and death because he is the great curse reverser. He himself is the resurrection and the life. Do you have this Jesus, this Messiah, this Christ as your unshakable hope this morning? Do you know him? Do you have a saving relationship with Jesus? Are you working for or against the kingdom of God because it's coming and it's already here? Have you repented, that is, turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus alone to save you? Perhaps you were here struggling with a physical illness, something that's consuming your life, a trial in your life. Maybe you are discouraged or even frustrated that God's not healing you. Take heart, beloved. Your present affliction is driving you to the grace of the mighty Messiah. May this storage encourage you that God is still in the business of making all things new. The fact that Jesus is building his kingdom means that if you are in him, your suffering is working for your good. It's not meaningless. God redeems it. He is working through your suffering to build a weight of glory which is incomparable in the next life. Hudson Taylor offers hope-giving insight into our suffering. He says, quote, Not infrequently, our God brings his people to difficulties on purpose that they may come to know him as they could not otherwise do. Then he reveals himself as a very present help in trouble and makes the glad heart, makes the heart glad indeed at each fresh revelation of a father's faithfulness. He hasn't forgotten you. He's reversing the curse. He's reversing it even now. Run to this great healer. Pour out your heart before him. Trust him even when you cannot trace him. Childlike faith trusts both in the power and timing of Jesus. Trust that he's able to do it, that he is going to make it new, and trust that his timing is best. This woman waited 12 long years. Trust his timing is best. He is making all things new. He is building his kingdom. And the salvation that Jesus brings is total and it is complete. This transformation has begun and it's seen with this woman, but oh, it's not finished yet. It's the already but not yet of the kingdom, right? Death will be completely conquered. Sin will be totally eradicated and everything sad will be untrue as C.S. Lewis so beautifully reminds us. He's making all things new. I want to close with the hope of Revelation 21 verses 3 to 5. Listen to this Messiah. Now behold, 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, that is our hope this morning. Our hope is not that we will have a wealthy, healthy life here. Our hope is not that we will be young again in this broken, fallen world. Father, in one sense, we do believe in the prosperity gospel, just not in this life. We believe that you will make all things new and be far greater, far better than anything that we can ever imagine. Father, I pray that as great as hope as this is, as great that we will receive new bodies, I pray that our hope will be grounded supremely in the fact that Christ himself will be our God and we will be his people. That there will be no need for a son because he will be our light. That we can enjoy him forever. That we can worship him perfectly without a a sin-ridden heart. Father, I, I pray that you would encourage your people this morning by your word. I pray that they would see the glimpse of the hope of your, your majestic power and healing that you were able to do the impossible and that they would be encouraged to put their faith wholly in this Messiah, that, that they would be like this woman, that they would just reach out, that they would run to you. Father, would you encourage where encouragement needs to happen? Will you exhort where exhortation needs to happen? Father, will you rebuke where one needs to be rebuked, all for the glory of your kingdom, God. May you be magnified with us. May your name be proclaimed to the ends of the world, for you alone are worthy of it, God. It's the holy name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen.